Welcome to Let's Get Information. My name is Alexa Silvaggio, and this, my friends, is a podcast for seekers, entrepreneurs, spirit junkies, and wellness lovers of all kinds. Each week, we'll be offering you inspiration, education, and co-creation that will help you cultivate an epic life. So let's dig deep, lift up, and thrive through these personal stories, tips, how-tos, and most importantly, great, rich truth. Hello, hello, you guys. Welcome to Let's Get Information. Uh, I am so excited to have my dear Sarah Montana on the show today. Uh, For those of you that don't know Sarah, she is a writer. She's an editor. Uh, She has ghostwritten book proposals for several celebrity experts. Uh, She shapes content for authors and business owners, including eBooks, articles, and blog posts. She's a playwright. And most importantly, she's just an all-around incredible soul. She has also helped me with my book proposal, and I, I truly cannot say enough, um, enough about her. She also has an, a remarkable story that I know um, many of you will just be touched by. All of you will be touched by. Um, so let's sit back and let's get information. Sarah Montana, thank you so much for coming on Let's Get Information podcast. I am so undeniably stoked to have you. Uh, You're a gift to me. So thank you for being here. I am so undeniably stoked to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys, Sarah Montana is like, well, she wears like 17 million hats because she's just like that type of human. But I have to tell you, I've had the privilege of working with this woman uh, on my book and she has helped me form my book proposal. And I have learned so much and just grown so much as a writer, as a human, thanks to this gorgeous soul who you get to hear from today. Oh my gosh, so, this book is incredible. Like it's oh been a privilege to work on it. I've been singing. I'm like the evangelical yogi convert who is now <laughs> It's true. You have been doing chakra meditations. I'm really, that's fierce, girl. You me into a hippie. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I'm going to come over to your house and it's going to be like all gluten-free granola and shit. I'm really stoked about it. Yesterday I had to go buy an incense burner because now all Matt <laughs> husband wants to do is burn like <laughs> our apartment every day which he clearly can't do right like nog champa like the original like og uh incense that's awesome it's insane that's, that's so awesome well anyway enough about my book and and what's going on with me and how i've converted you into a hippie welcome to the club <laughs> um but i want to hear about what is cooking for you right now? You are killing the game of life. You are creating so much magic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So gosh, how do I, how do I put this? So I guess a year ago I quit a little over a year ago. I quit my job at a hedge fund. I had been writing on the side for a while. Um, and I started my own business writing from home, Um, and that's kind of a, like you said, there's about 17 different hats. Some of that is that I go straight for people. Some of it is that I help people like you with their book proposals and really take their, like, here's a big box of ideas and everything I know wisdom wise, how do we turn it into something that has a methodology and a structure Mm. and that, uh, like help people get their heads around, um, exactly how to compartmentalize what they do into something that gives other people access to it. You know, all of us who need all this help and this wisdom, 
Um, I also wrote a play that I had a reading for at this um, amazing off-Broadway theater. If you've heard of Life Jacket Theater, then you know how incredible it is. If you haven't, you must must see their shows. Everything is about how do you do investigative theater. So it's all real-life stories turned into plays and how theater is a great lens for exploring reality. Um, The guy was brilliant. Um, but I did that. And then, um, I've been working on, uh, doing, dipping my toe into the movie world, which would be exciting. And, um, I just went away on a gateless writing retreat with Suzanne Kingsbury, who is brilliant Mm. approach to creativity, um, completely changed the way I think about writing. It's the whole idea is that we in the arts really just in life. And your book talks about this. Like we are Mm -hmm. in a cult of criticism. We all think we're more driven. We think that we're better people if we eviscerate the shit out of ourselves. And no place in that. I know you know this from being a dancer. I felt this in opera world. I've seen it less so in writing worlds, but I know that there are a lot of writers who went through MFA programs who experienced this, just this idea that by dissecting things and criticizing things as we create them, that we're somehow being helpful when brain science says that that actually has the opposite effect. It destroys what yes. we do. Um, I went away to this weekend and did that and actually got to experience what it's like to be in a non-critical space and try to make things. Wow. It's, a, the best writing I've ever done because she's a genius. She leads you through this whole guided meditation. It's fantastic. Yes, woo-woo. It, yes, woo-woo. It, <laughs> okay, so it's the perfect marriage of woo-woo. Like, it's not woo-woo. It's like spirit, It's like a spiritual lens for what is all cognitive brain science, which yes. makes sides of my brain and my body so happy. <laughs> because cool. Secretly uh, nerd and a total wish I was a monk. Um, <laughs> whatever you know, nerds are the best people. <laughs> nerds yeah. rule the world. It's all good. It's so true. Um, it, but it was in, it was incredible. And I came back. The the like beautiful byproduct of that too, which speaks to a lot of what your book is about. Not to keep plugging that shamelessly, but I am for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, girl. <laughs> Love you. Love you. <laughs> There's a lot of times, particularly as women, that we experience what it's like for criticism and self-criticism to not be allowed. And so I walked away feeling like not only did my creativity get a boost, but that payoff for everybody tells you not to be critical of yourself. And that all sounds well and good, but then you experience it and see how much further you can run, how much better it feels to be in your body when you're not beating it up, how much better it feels to just be on this earth when you're not making it a painful experience 24 seven. And suddenly you realize it really just doesn't serve you at all. I like, Spent, went to the woods with all these older women and suddenly came back and looked at my body and was like, oh my God, thank God I'm thicker in these places. Like, thank God yeah. I have like, <laughs> like smile lines and laugh lines and yes. you know, scream lines like Kimmy Schmidt. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm obsessed. That's amazing. What a beautiful takeaway. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you carved out time because you are the master at... <laughs> at doing things for everyone else. 
it's it's I feel like it's time for you to like step into your power and to share your truth and your stories and the wisdom that you have cultivated over the years that is like so profound um, and it's time for you to be in the light of that like just to indulge in the light of it and to share it because we need you thank you I'm excited to do that too I think also yeah. it's like the, the, I can be a better service to other people. If I put my money where my mouth is, I can't ask sure. all these other wise spiritual, you know, gurus and teachers and therapists and people who I write for to be brave and put themselves out there. If I'm not willing to walk the walk. So mm. that's, that's just kind of a like, okay, I gotta nut up and do this factor too. <laughs> God. I so get it. I mean, it's like that ultimate vulnerability too of being like, okay, well, I'm, I'm real good at telling you what to do and, and real good at, at, you know, showing up for you. But when it comes to me, it's like, how do I do this in a way that doesn't scare the shit out of me? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's one thing that like the experts I work with always say that I am so guilty of is, well, the world doesn't need my voice too. Somebody already talks about that. And again showed me, you know, you're with 11 other people who are all responding to the same prompt, who all are writing quote unquote about the same thing. And yet each of them had something. So it didn't matter if even what they said was revolutionary or not. They're the color of them on that idea that like what they brought of themselves to it, the language they chose, the stories that they weaved into it. Like we needed every single one of those and there was no repetition in it. And everything like that idea that we were responding to became that much richer and more complete. So we need everybody's voice. And I can't, I keep telling everyone else that, but you're right. I totally need to like listen to my own advice on that. (laughs) No, you're doing it, sister. I mean, going to this, going away on this retreat is proof of that. And it is so true. I mean, and and I've been, you know, it's so funny. I've been doing, you know, these interviews just for a week now. And there's such a through line of the fact that we all need connection and we all need to see ourselves in someone else. And so the way that you write something is going to be different than Joe Schmo does. And someone will connect to Joe Schmo, whereas someone else will connect to Sarah Montana. And so we need, we need the me too's. We need the connection. We need the through line of like, Oh, I see myself. This is a mirror to me. Um, cause we're all, most of us are saying the same things. It's true, but it's the way in which we say them that either rebuffs or, or, uh, you know, makes people want to, want to pull in. It's permission. I think to be yourself like somehow we live in the freest country in the world and yet we have permission to be ourselves or oh, our experience amen. be real. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that, I mean, there's a whole larger conversation we can have about like why that is the way it is. Uh, yes. But I think that there's a lot of like, we're a very, we're a very a culture that's very scared of pain and very scared of death and things have to always go through the cycle of life, death, life, like life, death, rebirth. And like, Uh, Yes. I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but I think that when you see somebody else go through that experience and you see that they didn't, that maybe they did die and have to like be reborn again, it gives you permission to take chances, to be in your own skin, to be vulnerable. And to own it. And you know, it's so funny because here I am a yoga teacher and it's like every every class that I've ever taught, it's like, okay, well, we start in child's pose or in some like seed-like state, and then we end up in corpse pose, which is, you know, the ultimate 
you know, surrender, the ultimate um, dying away of that which no longer serves, which, by the way, is every moment. Every moment is a death, right? We take in a breath until we don't need it anymore, and then we get rid of it. Yes. That's the death. That's the that's the exhalation. That's the release to make space for that other rebirth, that next breath that comes in. Um, so you're so right, and you know you're you're just like aligning everything so beautifully. So I'm just going to keep going on this topic, but I would love for you to share your story because you are probably one of the most amazing humans that I have ever known. So open, so empathic, and just, of course, all around lovely. But you're also just so undeniably strong. <laughs> you have overcome some really profound trauma. I mean, and like really, truly, you are, you, you're an inspiration and, and you've really alchemized it and grown from it. Um, so if you wouldn't mind sharing your story about, about loss and recovery and, and, you know, really how you've turned these scars into, into this magnificent human that you are, you know, yeah, please share. Well, what's funny. And I, I will get to like the actual story of it in two seconds. But as you say that, what came to mind for me is there was this guy this weekend who also lost his son. His son was also killed. And he Mm. kind of approached me at one point and said, have you actually processed this or are you like, is this a fake it till you make it? Are you in denial? And I could tell there was like all this like tension and like hurt underneath the statement, but also this like optimism and hope at the same time. And it breaking. But I said to him, you you know, he's an older man who lost his son. I said, you, I was like, I was afforded the luxury of experiencing trauma, which sounds really crazy, but like there's the luxury of experiencing trauma when I was 21 and didn't have any responsibilities except to get my shit together. (laughs) I didn't ultimately, even if I felt responsible for my dad or my brothers or my family, only as responsible as anybody can be for anyone else. The bond between a parent and child is very different. And um, so in some ways I've been able, I've been afforded the blessing of going, like figuring out how to get through trauma because I didn't have kids. I wasn't married yet. I wasn't, you know, I was in the process of building my life from the ground up anyways, because every 21, 22 year old has to do that. Uh, I was untangling this other thing at the same time. Um, yeah. So, but what a beautiful way to see that though, because I can, uh, like, I know how easy it would be. And of course, no one even knows your story yet. Well, some people do, but, but to see your circumstances as so, um, just like all around shitty, you know, like you really, you really have obviously done the work (laughs) because, because it'd be very easy to still be like in the shit of it. Honestly, I think that, um, Okay, so let me tell the story and then I will say what I will say is like I've I have vacillated between the two extremes for years of sure. well there's so much beauty that came out of this, you know, the the side of you that's trying to pull as far away from the magnet of trauma as you possibly can and just being mm-hmm. in the shit of it. And I think that the truth of trauma is that you have to learn to live between that tension of opposites. If you overcompensate too far in either direction, you're going to drown. Either the times that the darkness of it does leach through will catch you by the heels and throw you around like you're being attacked by a dog or you will just live in the mud and you won't be able to breathe. Um, so yes. Okay. So, um, in 2008, 
my senior year of college, while I was home on Christmas break, a uh, kid from our neighborhood who was 17, was the younger sibling of two of our friends from high school, broke into our house just looking to uh, rob some things that he could sell them. I don't know if it was for Christmas gifts or what. Um, and he did not realize that my brother would be home. So out of shock, he shot my brother, Jim, who was 19. He was a sophomore at JMU with me at the time and, uh, killed him. And then he realized he forgot his jacket and came back and he got there just after my mom had discovered that Jim was dead. And so, um, they had a scuffle, which is like a really weird word (laughs) to choose for that exchange. But they, yeah, they had an altercation and then he, um, in his confession, he says he didn't know how to get out of it and he knew that she recognized him. And so he shot her too and killed her. He's now in, he got sentenced to life in prison. He's in a prison in Southwest Virginia. That's actually a pretty brutal prison, um, which has been a very strange exploration of how justice works and who justice is for and, you know, all of those things about the American um, prison system and what we do in these situations and how we help victims. Um, yes. But, but yeah, that was, you know, it, I was the oldest of four. And so I had two little brothers, one who was in high school, Connor, and one who was in elementary school at the time, Liam. And then my dad was 40 when this happened. So mm. it was, I guess, intense is the understatement of the century. <laughs> The understatement of the century. I mean, this is what I mean when I say that you are, without a doubt, a warrior woman. I mean, I don't. I have, of course, have had my own struggles, um, and yet I can't imagine the anger and the resentment and the profound blame that would course through me if that were if that were me in that situation. And so the fact that you're able to sit here and talk to me about it with so much grace, I'm truly flabbergasted. Well, you know, what's funny as you say that is like, I've definitely went through periods of intense anger, but anger is always, I think, sort of the, um, anger, sort of the leader of the parade of emotion. Like he's the guy who's ushering us in, but it's usually not the real feeling below. Um, and I actually didn't go there at first. And then I ended up not staying there. It was fear. It was Mm. for me, the biggest, like that initial shock that started to create, I started getting panic attacks on a regular basis after this happened. And then eventually I did start going to therapy. I started doing all, I mean, I threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. I did acupuncture. I did therapy. I was, I got a master's in opera because something about operatic singing was making me feel like I could purge those emotions and move through it and was connected to my body. Um, but the biggest, the thing at the core of those panic attacks that finally allowed me to release them was just this fear that like, it's all tied up in safety, right? Like there was no good reason or there's really no reason why he killed them. It was all reactionary. Um, And as we try to, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to piece that back together. I even wrote a play to try to piece out what happened. And you arrive in this place where you go, there's no reason for it. In fact, evil's just kind of evil. I don't think he's evil. I just think that there, there is evil in the world and it sometimes gets ignited in these situations and coming to terms with the fact that 
horrible things are going to happen that you can't control and that people will do things and you won't be able to reason through or rationalize why they happened and they might burn everything in your life to the ground is just a really terrifying thing to come up against, particularly in your 20s when you're already worried about like, how are you going to like pay for your apartment? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are like fears that are so far beyond the like rational fears of like, is this boy going to ask me out? You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's just some next level weight on your shoulders. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It, and for me, I realized that there was this really natural, um, cycle that you never realize you're in at the time. At first, I I won't call it overcompensating. The thing that got me through was by really clinging to the light, like it was a life raft. I looked at how many people came out of the woodwork to support us. I mean, it was, there were 2,000, maybe 2,500 people at mom and Jim's funeral. When I got back to school, everyone was around me was incredible. When I got like out in the world, it just felt like people were always reaching out a hand to lift you up and pull you out of the water. And it's such an like exhilarating, not the right word. It's in a, it's like a life affirming feeling in the midst of all this death that you're just overcome with wonder for the first year or two that that is possible, that, that life finds a way of balancing out that way, or that I guess that humans do, uh, find a way to balance that out for you. But then once life gets back to, um, you know, finds an equilibrium and you're back to life as usual, that's when it all hit. Um, yeah. Then, then it really did bring me to my knees. Like I was, I was running and running and running to like higher ground as fast as I could. And once I got there, I realized that I abused my body and my voice and my reserves in order to get to safe ground. And that there was a serious healing and recovery process from there. Yes. And that's so understandable. I think when we're trying to find our equilibrium, just we're going to go to both extremes, you know, we're going to push and push and push, or we're going to, you know, retreat, retreat, retreat. Like it's, (laughs) it's, it's the balancing process. And that's, I'm, I'm still just astonished by you, but, um, was there a particular kind of healing modality that was really powerful in your healing? Yeah, actually. Well, so there's, there were a couple of different things. I, so first and foremost, um, there's a lot of things. I like have this little baby kit I've put together that I've now started giving to people when people die. It's not even a kit. It's just like, here are all the things you can try in any order that you want. Um, for me, one of the life-saving things actually was, uh, getting back to school and Dr. Carrie Stevens at JMU was incredible about being like, listen, you don't really have a choice. I've hooked you up with a therapist and you're going to go get a massage once a month at least. Um, I love that. Yeah. And it was, it really was even before I knew what was happening, her pushing me to not let my tissues absorb the shock. No, they still totally did because this thing was so huge. huge, Giant knot emerge in my shoulder. Um, like days after mom and Jim were killed, uh, my shoulder just seized up my right shoulder. And Mm. I was in rehearsals for a show. When we got back, Brandon Duncan, my friend is massaging my shoulder and he goes, Holy shit, your shoulder feels like a bag of frozen worms. Oh my God. Oh, now that is a visual, you know, your, your arms are an extension of your heart. Yeah. 
Well, and I got, so on this retreat this past weekend, you know, I've been trying to treat this thing for years and it comes in and out. And sure. um, there was this huge release and the guy, Lucas, who was doing this uh, Thai massage said, stop trying not to cry, just let it out. And I cried and cried and cried and cried. And he's, wow. he was like, so when did the, when did the injury start? And I told him and he was like, so that meridian is all about grief. He was like, when people... Yes lose someone often they say in like in in acupuncture i guess in an acupressure that it feels like a sho- uh, an arrow has been shot through your right shoulder yes it's always the right by the way that's so crazy i mean yeah. I everybody else know you know more knows more about this but i was sitting there like i oh, like, astonishing i i like levitated out of this session and was just like so that's what's been going on i knew yes but I felt a little like a crazy person for saying, Hey, I have this knot in my shoulder because my mom and brother were killed. Like it doesn't. Right. Right. <laughs> you sound even more granola E when you say stuff like that, but it's, but it's real. Yeah. It's so real. You know, our mutual friend and I just, I just interviewed Shannon. So everyone knows who Shannon is. Um, well, you will, if you haven't already listened to his episode, please go ahead and get on that. But um, Shannon went through a breakup and immediately his right shoulder seized completely. He couldn't move his right arm for like two months. Grief is crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. And that, so the physical stuff was really huge for me. Like I did have to do that. Therapy has been a lifesaver and I went in and out of it. One thing I tell people is that it's not enough to just say, I'm going to go see a therapist. You have to do your research, do the work and figure Mm. out what modality of therapy is going to be most effective for you. And there are therapists out there who will probably fight me on that and say like, how does the patient really know? And and they're right. You do have to kind of go experiment. I encourage people as scary as this sounds, go do, most therapists will give you a free consultation. So go do the consultation. Now also keep in mind that you don't find a groove with a therapist until at least eight to 10 weeks in. Like it takes that long to, for the work to really start the rest. I totally agree. Yeah. It's a download until then. Like, yeah. it's like let me catch you up on the last however many years. <laughs> and so yeah. for me, I, you know, I experimented with a lot. I tried, um, CBT. And for some people that is in, like incredibly effective. I yes. found that it wasn't for me because the nature of my trauma wasn't something in CBT, at least my feeling that I got from it was that you're often trying to rewire behavioral patterns. And you're also trying to put the lie to your, to the beliefs that aren't serving you. That makes so much sense that it wouldn't work. So for those of you that don't know, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that makes sense that it wouldn't because it probably also made you kind of relive the experience rather than like process it. Totally. For me, the thing that worked best, and you know, this is coming from the world of being an opera singer and a theater geek, I really, the uh, I am with a Jungian psychologist, and there's something about dealing with the archetypal, with this idea that the reason that we keep seeing the same kinds of characters and stories over and over and over again is that they are a reflection of like these components of human psychology is really um, is really grounding for me and is a nice way to examine trauma with actually a little distance. And with that me too sense of connection that you said before, if people have been going, have been orphaned psychologically for the entire span of human history, I'm not alone. And there's a way to get through this. 
Yes. Um, yes. God, you're so good at it. That is so cool. I actually have not really experimented with Jungian psychology. That's so – how many modalities do you think you went through before you found – I probably went through three or four. I think this was the fourth therapist that I went to. And some of that was because I was in Harrisonburg and then I moved to – then I moved back to Northern Virginia for like a brief little bit. And then I yeah. moved to New York and was in grad school and some of it was insurance. And finally – I think you have to pay attention when the same things keep popping up in your field of vision. I would like read a book. I like read a book that I, about coaching when I was working with my clients and I really loved all of the quotes from Jung. And so that was kind of a mental check mark. And then one of my therapists who I adored in Harrisonburg, the things that really worked for me was when she would do dream analysis. I'm a pretty avid dream, avid. I'm a pretty active dreamer. Um, I dream almost every night. It, Wow. I usually remember my dreams. And I do think that dreams do tell you about, I think they are a way that your unconscious is trying to speak to you and bring certain things to your attention. And that's a lot of union yeah. work is too. Um, so I loved all, I loved all of that. No, look, Jung, like anybody else has his shortcomings and it's sure. like, you know, it's something that, um, is a little too hippy dippy for some people. Again, I think it depends on who you are and what your personal trauma is that you're trying to um, unravel. He's the father of complexes. So Jung is the guy who came up with the concept of having a complex about something. Uh, mm. He was a protege of Freud's who basically in a nutshell said, I don't know if this is all about sex. That feels a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love Freud. It's like all about your mom or your dad. You want to screw one of them. It's like so weird. <laughs> all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I actually had a dream that a giant phallic snake was attacking New York City. And then I woke up and realized it was Freud's birthday. And I was like, well, <gasps> thank you for that. <laughs> Wait, are you being serious? <laughs> oh, my God. I think you're like an in, secretly like an intuitive phallic genius. <laughs> Wait, can I add that to my LinkedIn bio? Sarah Montefiore. It's, it's already on there. I put it on there today. Yeah, I did that for and you. Yeah. Intuitive phallic genius. That is the fiercest title of all titles. As my husband walks in tonight, I'm going to be like, hey, guess what I am? <laughs> guess what? <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. You're you're real lucky, by the way. That is amazing. I, oh, my God. She, so my wow. therapist is a genius. And the, look, it, it is one of those things, too, where I used to be an A student overachiever. Used to be. Like, still kind of am. But I yes. acknowledge that now. And I really held on to this belief for a long time that one day I would do all the right things and grief would just be over. Like, I would fix it. I would get an A in grieving. Um, yeah. That if I, you know, like, it was just like, check all the boxes and I would get there. And so the truth is it's both. Like, I actually do think that now I'm not grieving anymore, um, which is a really weird and scary and sad thing to say as much as it's a wonderful and hopeful thing to say. Because yes. I think a lot of us, I know at least for me, I didn't really want to stop grieving because it meant that I was acknowledging actively that I was starting a chapter that mom and Jim wouldn't even be side characters in. I mean, and that sounds terrible. Of course, I'm always going to carry them with me. Of course, like I can no sooner lose them than I could lose my big toe or my right arm. I always say 
That doesn't sound terrible at all, by the way. I think that sounds like the the rebirth that we were talking about. Yeah. To me, for a while, and I'm sure people can relate with this, there was this, do you ever feel like there's a compulsion driving the way you interact with people where you're like, how long do I have to know this person and how much do they have to know about me before it is imperative that they know my family was murdered? It's like a neon sign above your head. It's like, at some point, ask me about the murder in my family. So the understand me. And I genuinely now am in a place after doing all of that work where you don't have to know that about me. It's kind of like, you don't need to know what happened to Oprah in her childhood to know who Oprah is. Not that I'm Oprah. Like, let's not get it twisted. Well, I I don't know. You're, you're pretty up there on my book, but yeah. (laughs) It's like, you can stay. Please keep saying that. (laughs) <laughs> You've been called many things today, and one of them is I'm potentially Oprah, and the other is what was it? Phallic genius. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry. Back to what you were saying. They go together. Poor, wait, I can't put that on Oprah. That's too much. Um, uh, you never know. You never know. Uh, so I, but I do think that there comes a point where that is no longer defining you. It is a thing that has shaped you. I had this, like this amazing teacher from high school who I'm obsessed with and is sort of my, um, archetypal, like warrior woman who I think of when I need to be brave, um, named Miss Graham. And she made us do an essay about who we were, what's shaped us and who we want to be senior year of high school. And her whole thing was she has gone through unspeakable tragedy and trauma. I mean, she makes her history makes me look like Pollyanna. And yet she said to us that day in class, like, but these things are not who I am. They have shaped me. They have taught me, but they're not me because they're not who I've chosen to be. And right. Like, Thank God for mentorship like that, because I truly believe when I was standing in the cul-de-sac and the policeman is telling me that there's been a terrible incident and that my mom and brother are dead. And I can hear someone screaming before I realize it's even before I realized it was me who was screaming. Even through all of that din, her voice is there saying, this is not who you are. This is a thing that is happening to you. Wow. Wow. I don't think we tell people that, especially in this culture, we tell people that you are what's happened to you. Once you get that label that that's it and there's no, like labels can protect us for a long time. Labels can help us like explore a safe container for who we are and keep bad people out who want to tell us who we are. But at some point they're also very restricting and you can outgrow that cage. And you may not need a cage anymore. And I, I did, I did feel a while, like the whole time I was grieving, I felt this like chip on my shoulder resistance to being called a victim, especially since like, I mean, I had people look me in the face and tell me, oh my God, you're never going to be okay again. It's like, what a shit thing. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Who are these people? Oh my God. Oh my God. Everywhere. I know. You know what? We do it. I see it in the media all the time. We tell people once this has happened to you that like, this is who you are, that you are. Right. And, and that is one of the most, it's not only a very discouraging thing to hear, which can either make you collapse in on yourself or get really um, indignant and rebellious, which is high. I was the latter. Um, thanks to my dad. Yes. He's my dad. 
like thank god captain fighter my dad is just like the most resilient human on the planet to the point of almost like being too hard on himself he is like nope like he just honestly i feel like he just grabbed a rope and tied us all to it and just kicked for sure with like superhuman aquaman speed um but but i yeah i think that i go ahead what you're saying is what you're saying is really resonating actually because like I think of someone saying something to you to the effect of like oh you're never going to be okay again and like of course that takes me aback and I'm just like what the actual f you know like wow um and yet at the same time like I look at all these other areas in life where people are put in these boxes. It's like, um, I interviewed Jordan wisely a few days ago and he was born without a left hand. So he's quote unquote disabled, you know, and, uh, even me as, you know, an anorexic, if the part of the reason I don't subscribe, and of course this is so you're on a totally different level of this, but it is amazing how we all put ourselves in these boxes. You know, I don't really subscribe to the AA model, um, the Alcoholics Anonymous model, and I'm not blowing it. Any anyone who who does, please, like, if it's working for you, like, live, do it. But like in OA, which is like the anorexics version of that, you know, every time you speak, you stand up and go, "Hi, my name's Alexa. I'm an anorexic, bulimic, uh, compulsive overexerciser." You know, and you announce that as your introduction, like that's how you show yourself. Yeah. And you know, that's like I part of the reason I don't subscribe is because like, I don't want to affirm that. Like, I don't want us, I don't want to fall under that jurisdiction. And it's the same thing, I think for like cancer patients, you know, like my mom, you know, who has stage four ovarian cancer is afraid to see people because she's afraid that people will look at her as a sick person. Like that's who she is now. And, um, and so like literally there are people that she hasn't seen since her right. diagnosis because of that. Um, and and it's true. Like what you're saying that someone would say something to the effect of like, oh, you're you're never going to be the same. It's like my mom has had doctors say like, wow, your prognosis is really sucky. But like the procedure went great, but your prognosis still sucks. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> like, uh, okay. Like how do you, you know, press on from that? So man, you are a tough cookie. You're a tough cookie. I think it's, you know, like that, that AA model, like you said, I think there's this, so maybe this is the symptom of being a 20 something year old and well now 30. Um, But I think for a long time, I've, I felt that I feel that same thing of like, that tool isn't serving me of, of labeling myself anymore. But I do also know that part of the reason that AA is designed that way and the way that, and the reason I needed something like that is because sometimes the resistance to the death that's required of self in this process is so like extreme and you've dug your heels in so far, you risk like losing your soul in order to avoid the label. Um, that's a really weird way of putting it, but it's like, I was so determined not to be a victim that I was denying myself crucial aspects of my grieving process. And in doing that, I like, when you don't do it, shit gets weird. Like I started turning my mom into a bad guy. I started convincing myself, you know, you'll go to the, you'll overcorrect to the extreme and say like, no, 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 everything happens for a reason. No, murder doesn't happen for a reason. That's right. Insanity. But right. 
I found myself, and I think I talked about this a little bit on Soul Feed with Shannon. Uh, oh my gosh, I think that was two years ago. Holy yes, smoke. yes, I remember because I remember listening to your episode and just bowing to you. <laughs> so sweet. But there was a moment where, like, I had to lay myself down on the floor and say out loud, "Just your mom is dead and she's not coming back," and then repeat it until. I physically acknowledged it was true. Like I consciously understood that that was the truth, but I hadn't embodied it. I hadn't physicalized it yet. And so until I started crying and knew that my body had accepted that truth, that it wasn't resisting this psychological death of self, like Sarah, the daughter, um, Mm. Mm -hmm. I couldn't let it go. I couldn't start healing. You can't heal. If you walk around with like this giant festering wound, um, like telling everyone, like, what are you talking about? I don't smell anything. My arm is fine, but you can't get better. Um, but then once you're healing slash healed, um, I think it's a different thing. Then, then we don't have to point to the scars all the time because most people might not even notice them and they might not really be serving you. Um, Mm. so it's a beautiful, yeah, it's like, I needed a hammer at one point, and now I need a screwdriver, and that's okay. So. Yes. Wow. <laughs> well, do you think? Do you think at some point you're you're amazing? Do you think at some point you will write a, a book on this? Do you think that you'll share this story? I think so. You know. Okay. So because I write for so many experts, for a long time I thought that the way to write about this, I got really boxed in on what that had to look like. So it, sure. It was like, well, am I, I, God, like, I think the first time I met you, I was designing like this really, really, um, oh God, this what we- I was going to make a website about like how to grieve and help people and like provide all these resources, yes. um, which yes. actually I'm finding is a totally normal phase of grieving. Everybody, you know, when you <laughs> find the tools that work for you, you just want to shout them from the top of the mountain, um, and become an sure. grief. Um, that's not who I am though. Ultimately. Um, I think that I don't think I'm, I'm the angel of death. I think I'm Sarah and I've had this experience and it should be shared. I think it should be shared artistically. I love mm-hmm. the play last year. I do. I'm starting to think now that that might not have been the ideal medium. When I went away this weekend, I just was responding to these prompts and writing these like really fun, artistic, uh, short essays. And I think that eventually what I will do is write a book that is a mosaic of memoir essays like that so that you get the full picture of how something like this fits into a person, the story, yeah. just the death and the tragedy. Yes. Um, Knowing that this is like one puzzle piece versus like the whole overriding yeah. situation. And how, how it's kind of like, here's the puzzle and somebody splattered paint across it. So there's flex yes. that thing in every other piece, but it's not... The, the, but the piece isn't defined by that per se. Some pieces are. Some pieces may totally just be the color of that paint of tragedy. Yes. But other yes. may just have a dot. Some pieces may get out totally scot-free. Um, mm. I don't think Beautiful. we talk about trauma that way. That it's like, it doesn't have to be your story, but it is a huge part of your story. Yes. Yes. So I do like that book. Things heal. Things heal. Yes. And I want to give, I mean, truthfully, I'm giving myself 18 months to write that book and then I'm going to see what happens. So. Wow. Oh my God. I cannot wait. I'll have to have you back on once that's, (laughs) once that's published. 
We'll see. I mean, you know, the whole thing just started. I started writing the play because I needed to figure out a way to forgive the kid who killed them because of Sophie, because of Shannon Algio, who was like, so I want to talk to you about forgiveness. And I was like a deer in headlights. It was like, blah, 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 blah. What was that word mean? Was that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it was something that I had said that I had done over and over and over again. And I turns out I hadn't actually done it at all. Um saying it and even believing that you've done it isn't the same thing as forgiving, I don't think. And that's a really important part of the healing process. So I literally wrote a play and then realized I didn't have an ending and was like, oh, I have to forgive him. And then (laughs) I had to go research and figure out how the F to do that. Yes. What does that forgiveness process look like for you, if you don't mind sharing? Not at all. Um, So I am, we've already established pretty well that I'm a giant nerd in uh, what I like to think is the best possible way. So I hit the books really hard. I read every, I read a bunch of medical research studies on forgiveness in different contexts. Although truth be told, there's a shocking, like there's really like a dearth of research around forgiveness, which is interesting. Um, But then I also read every theological text. I actually had like, I downloaded apps for like every religious text I could find and did searches for the word forgiveness or for forgive. Yes. And read every single passage in the Bible, in the Quran, in like the Torah, and like all these different religious texts I could find. Yes. Uh, In like Buddhist texts and, you know, like all of this other stuff. And um, what was really interesting, and people may fight, I'm not, look, I'm not a divinity scholar, obviously. Um, but what I found interesting was there was a lot of information on convincing people that forgiveness was worth it. And what would happen if you did there, I couldn't find any how to instructions. Like, like sure. was, the sales pitch was super strong. Um, nobody said this is what constitutes forgiveness because I think we have a lot of resistance around forgiveness as a culture, but also I wrestled with all of the, okay, is forgiving condoning. Okay. So it's not condoning the action. Okay. So what is it specifically that I'm forgiving and what happens when I do forgive? What does that mean for us and our relationship? What am I really saying when I say I forgive you? Mm. And like, I always quote, there's this really like discovering that in Judaism, um, if I, like, if I was Jewish, I would not be allowed to forgive Xavier for murdering mom and Jim. Oh, I said his name. Dang. Um, sure. I, because I, that was a faux name, everybody. That was a faux name. Faux. <laughs> 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 well, totally faux. Yeah. Um, I, I would not be allowed to forgive him for that because he didn't do that to me. That would be between him and them, but they're not here to forgive either. So there's like the Mm. sins that only God can forgive. And then there's the sins that are our responsibility to forgive or transgressions, I guess, is probably the better word. Um, So for me, I had to settle on this. And there's also the whole justice piece. Like if I forgive him, does that mean I think he should be set free? Does that mean I don't think that he deserves to be in jail? You know, it's like it's a very intricate um, not to untangle and what I arrived on that worked for me was that forgiveness and unconditional love are pretty similar at the end of the day, but they have opposite goals. The goal of unconditional love is to actually bond us together. And there are no conditions around that thing. We are just bonded because we are bonded and nothing can break that thing. I think the goal of forgiveness is to take conditions away from the relationship and actually to end the relationship in that current form. So 
whatever you are to each other, forgiveness, like whatever villain you have made that person for you, um, you're ending that relationship and starting a new one if you want, or maybe not starting a new relationship after that. But I had to get real about the fact that I, that fear we talked about at the beginning of this interview, I made him the face and cause of all of that. Mm. Like I stopped making him a human and turned him into a monster. Like he wasn't a person to me anymore. And I don't mean a monster, like a person, uh, uh, like a monster that I hated. I mean, I made him the thing that I feared and that, it also, it may not be as evil as killing people, but it's still an evil thing to do. And wow! so I decided that the only way to do it was to let him know that he, forgiveness to me means what happened isn't okay. It's not okay. We're not condoning it, but yes. I am releasing the debt between us. He still owes society something because that's the punishment for taking people's lives and disrupting the fabric of safety that knits us all together. Uh, But he doesn't owe me anything anymore because I don't need him to do or be anything for me anymore. I don't need him to give me answers. I know he doesn't have, I don't need him to be the face of evil for me. I just need him to go about being a human who hopefully is on a redemptive path. He may not be, but Um, So I wrote him a letter. I actually took pages out of my mom's journal that were unwritten. And um, I wrote him this letter, just letting him know that that was how I felt about it. I didn't know if he wanted my forgiveness. I acknowledge that was a little um, condescending to offer it without it being sought. But I don't know that that matters. I think that... No, this was for you. This is so genius. I mean, just, I'm like, I'm so moved. Wow. It's also the thing I, the other thing I realized is kind of like unconditional love. It feels really good to love someone from afar um, and just enjoy having a crush on someone, right? It's not real until you tell them. And so in that sense, I don't know that, you know, we love to say forgiveness is for the forgiver. And I think the benefits to the forgiver are immense. The same way that loving someone has immense benefits, but you don't love someone for yourself. You love them because you love them, because you want to give them that gift. And forgiveness is a gift and it is transactional. And I think not voiced in some sort of ritual form, even if you don't, even if you can't send the letter, if that person's already passed away or they're just out of reach, you don't know how to get in touch with them. The intent to have that transaction and to give that gift is imperative. Otherwise, I think it's just words and wind. Wow. Sarah, what's your, what is your biggest fear now? In the world? Sure. (laughs) Um, For you personally, like how it applies to you? Specifically with forgiveness or just in general in living my life? Just in general, just in general. Um, I think my biggest fear is that I am finally gaining the confidence, like I'm finally gaining the belief that it's okay to be my weirdest, wildest, best artistic, womanly self. Mm. My biggest fear is that I will not be courageous enough to do it. That I will get to the end of my life and go, you let fear hold a lot of things back, which is like a weird self, like self-perpetuating cycle. I'm afraid yes. of being afraid of fear. Yeah, I think that is it. I think fear is the thing. We we like to say that fear is very necessary. Um, I think 
like, you know, it's this like instinct that we are supposed to have and use that lets us know that the saber toothed tiger is dangerous. Right, right. Yeah. And we do live in a really wild and tumultuous world these days, but we don't live in a wild and tumultuous age wherein it's really up to us to know what the saber toothed tiger is anymore. Unfortunately, I think we need to, how do I put this? I would rather trade my fear for, um, following my gut. Like, um, instead of saying I need fear to keep me in check, I would rather just trust that my gut is going to speak up and yell and tell me not to do something if it's really going to hurt me. I don't think that's fear. I think those are different things. And I'm starting to understand the subtlety of the difference. Fear is the thing that paralyzes me and makes my amygdala go crazy and makes me go into fight or flight. Listening to my gut when it starts to scream is different. It's like the fight or flight hasn't kicked in. It's just a wash of intuition that says, this guy has bad intentions. Get away from that dude. Sure. I I know that sounds subtle, but it's a one keeps me very conscious and aware as opposed to being reactive. I think is the best way I can put that. And my fear is I'm a people pleaser at my core. I want to fit in. I'm was an actress once upon a time. Like I am an, I am very empathetic and I will Mm -hmm. mirror back to you what you need. And I'm so responsive to people's needs. My biggest fear is that I won't, I, I want everyone to feel like they can be their wild, weirdest self, because I think that's who we need if we're going to heal a lot of this stuff. And um, I'm afraid that I'll recognize it and not do it, which is sadder than if I had just lived in the cave for the rest of my life. Well, girl, if I have anything to do with it, you're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I know it. Thank God you came into my life this summer. That's the other thing is like, well, my other fear of course is that like, okay, so no, like hardly any, I have one grandmother who is, still like kicking and thriving biologically. And then my step-grandmother is like my life and my world and I adore her. We're babies raising babies though. Everyone is still very young. My mom died when she was 39. My other grandmother died at 57 of breast cancer. Um, Mm. I think my other biggest fear, I'm just starting to relinquish this, this like, it wasn't even a fear. There was just something unconscious at me that was like, you're not going to have a long life. And now I'm trying to relinquish the fear to like perform and cram in a life, a life's worth of experiences into 10 years into going like, no nah, girl, you got till 80 to figure all this yes. out. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing how, you know, it's so funny. It's so interesting how many people I've actually heard say that recently. Like, oh yeah, I didn't think I was going to make it past 35. Like, you know, that's just like a belief. And I don't, I I don't for some reason I guess I haven't thought about that very much personally, um, but that's so that's so interesting like that's so, and I guess that that you know has genetic stuff and all sorts of things but that's just that's just interesting. It's uh, you know it didn't hit me until I was around all these older women this weekend, um, yeah. who are all accomplished and just like spiritually and artistically so badass. Like that's the only way to describe it. I was just like, this is the modern day equivalent of being an Amazon warrior woman in business (laughs) and all these things. I mean, these women who are just like so embodied and so like cool. Uh, and they were all, you know, like my parents are, my, my dad is 48. My mom would be 47. And most of the women were that age or older. And like, Oh, like, 
there's this whole way to live the rest of your life. Like they're writing about these things and I haven't even like, I'm still like five chapters back from that thing. Um, yes. Even Elizabeth Gilbert in her Ted talk, when she was like, you know, I'm 40, I'm really young for a writer. I like yes. fell to the floor. Yes. I was like, what? Everybody keeps telling me that after 25, you're like a raisin. Right. Well, especially in the acting world where both of us actually came from, you know, it's like, and dancing and singing, it's like, oh, well, okay, you're, please do throw the baby out with the bathwater if you're over 30. You know, it's like, oi, vey. Well, that's what your book has done for me this summer, too, is it's like, we've got a long way to go in these bodies. And if we're not nice to them, they're going to break down. We're going to just have to pull over to the side of the road so many times when we could be cruising. Um, Yes. And, I don't know. I think about like my friends, particularly in acting world, and I felt this thing. I even see it in with a ton of women in my life and men who are. It's it's everybody. Um, We're just so consumed with the idea that uh, we're so. I think it's that fear of death thing. We believe that the younger you can look, the more beautiful you are. And I kind of think it's crap. The longer time goes on, Patrick Dempsey is as sexy now as he was when he first became McDreamy to me. Like, yeah, (laughs) yes, and so real. And like, I saw like this weekend when I was with these women, and you saw just how embodied they were. I was like, how can I not be like, look at like their bodies are so perfect, and their bodies so like, like it's powerful. You young bodies don't have look; they may have ability, but they don't have that um, wisdom or power in them like or ownership yeah. it's ownership of it too yeah you know like I I shared a quote the other day on my Instagram that was like sexiness does not like come from the body it's it's the soul yeah. that's sexy you know like it really has nothing to do I mean look at um god what was her name who played Mrs. Robinson in the graduate was Anne Baxter oh, was it yeah. Anne Baxter? What was her name I want to, I think it was Anne Baxter and Bancroft. I can't remember who it was, but it's like these people who it has nothing to do with the way they look, you know, it's yeah. just like, it's an attitude. It's a soul thing. I think she's so much sexier too in that movie than the daughter. Like, Oh, 100%, 100%. So, no, yeah. it's so true. And I think that's true of everything. Like, I don't know. I, uh, I'm a rebel child who, you know, and my parents were like, you know, insane, wise little beings in teenage bodies when they had me. I mean, it's a miracle yeah. that they turned out to be the incredible parents that they did because most 17 year olds like don't, I don't know, they don't even go to class, let alone know how to raise a child. Yes, totally. But, oh my God. Well, Sarah, I mean, I honestly could talk to you all damn day, but it's already almost <laughs> been an hour. And so I think we should probably start to wrap things up, which is like devastating for me, but it's okay. I just get to talk to you later. Um, so now it's time. I must announce my darling. It is time for the rapid fire round, my Whoa. darling. Okay. Yes. So just whatever comes to mind out of these two, you know, either or options, I just want you to shout it out. Whoa. Okay. Okay, take a deep breath, deep inhale. Let it go. Oh, yeah. Okay, coffee or tea? Coffee. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Extrovert. Yoga, asana, or seated meditation? Seated meditation. Yes. Sex or sleep? Oh, sex. I know. That's, it's always like, oh, but it's, yeah, totally me too. Um, bourbon or wine? 
Wine. New York or L.A.? Oh, my gosh. New York. Yeah, I, I feel you on that. Uh, and I'm living in L.A., but that's okay. Um, <laughs> e- wah, wah. Uh, ebook or hard copy? Hard copy. Shower or bath? Mm. Um, oh, God, I can't choose. It's Sophie's choice. I know. Um, I know. I am going to say shower, though. Okay, nice. Milk or dark chocolate? Dark chocolate. Phone call or text? Phone call. Intelligence or humor? Woo! Can't have one without the other. Amen. Money or fame? Fame. I love it. I love it. Okay. (laughs) So, my love, what do you want people to know about you? What do you want to share that people may not know already? If anything. Do you want something deep or something silly? Either one. Whatever feels right to you at the moment. I feel like this has been such a heavy conversation. I'm going to end on something weird. I love it. Okay. So yeah. I have this secret useless talent. Um, and oh, that I'm is, so excited. I can slap my face and play any song that like that exists. So I like, care. You ready for it? What? I know. It's so weird. I, I wish you'd Wait, What? <laughs> so like here, this is, yeah. you'll recognize this. Okay. <gasps> you are kidding me right now. <laughs> You have to be fucking with me right now. No, that so by like hitting my cheeks with the palm of my hand, I can put like name a song. Oh my god! No, I have like the full O face right now. Um, okay, um, hopelessly devoted to you from Greece. Okay, uh, which which part should I start with? Um, the but now there's nowhere to hide. That part. that is a hard one too (laughs) oh my god okay that was first of all that was fierce um second of all every time we meet now for the book yeah (laughs) you you will have to do something um okay wait so so I, oh my God, I can't with you. Okay. So this podcast is, is really the, the purpose of it. The intention from my heart is to inspire people to go out there and create an epic life, right? We all have things, we all have crosses to bear. We all have journeys that we've uh, been on and had to alchemize or shift. And, and you are absolutely no exception to that. You are just an amazing human being, but I want to know, what is your definition of an epic life? Ooh. An epic life to me is one where you followed your intuition past mm. the bounds of what is reasonable and you made things to share with the world that only you can contribute. And I think we all know what those things are. We say that we're not special. We say that we don't have those things, but you know, deep down, I don't want to say gun to your head. Cause hello, what's this episode been about? But <laughs> under pressure, like in the spotlight, no time to think, you know what those things are, you know what, and it's not just one thing. You have these gifts that are intensely yours that just don't feel possible to share. And yes. if you listen and trust To me, an epic life is one where you used those until you felt like not depleted, but just like you used them until you wore them into the ground. And you like that to me is what it is. I want to be like 
the, I want my life to be like a pair of shoes that just like is worn down until there's no tread left because I ran them all over the world into the limits of my capabilities. That is so beautiful. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you as an amazing writer, an amazing friend, an amazing human uh, with such depth and so much wisdom. Um, I want to thank you for carving out the time to be here. Um, and now I just want to to ask where people can connect to you, maybe on social media, or if you have a website, where can people find you? Oh, yeah. Um, I should have a website, but I don't. Working on that. We're going to work on that. Um, <laughs> find me on Facebook. Um, and that's Sarah Montana, S-A-R-A-H, and then Montana like the state. You can find yes. me on Instagram, and I'm happy to connect there, uh, which is Sarah E. Montana, S-A-R-A-H-E, and then Montana like the state. Um, that's probably the best way. Or you can email me at sarahmontanawriter at gmail.com. And I'm Beautiful. happy to respond to all that. Beautiful. Sarah, thank you so much for being on Let's Get Information today. You are such a gem. Oh my God, you're a goddess. Uh, I'm so excited for this, like everything that you're creating. This is like the year of Alexis. This is it. it. All right, sister woman, love you so much. Love you too. Bye. You guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. What an absolute gift. Uh, please do connect to me. I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, um, social media in general at Alexa Silvaggio. And if you do have a second, I would be super grateful if you left us a review on iTunes. Why? Well, because that actually makes us more visible to everyone. And I'm all about spreading the good stuff, right? Spreading the goods, getting the word out because I want us all to benefit. I want us all to feel good. I want us all to thrive. So this is your gentle reminder, my love to go out there and create an epic life. All my love.